Hand in hand we walk each day. What a beautiful song as it reminds us of the Christian life, the one who directs us, the one who leads us. Certainly it's good for us to be together today on the first day of the week to offer our service of worship unto God. We're thankful for the presence of each and every individual, not only our membership, but certainly our visitors who've come our way. I hope that we each find our service to be encouraging and uplifting and solely truthful. I hope you have your Bible ready as we give some thought to a lesson I've entitled, There is One Body. Brother John read a moment ago from Ephesians chapter 4. If you'd like to open your Bible to that particular passage, we'll be reflecting somewhat in just a moment on that fourth verse of that chapter. The opening sentiments of this particular lesson I've tried to put on this next slide. I've called it an introduction, but I hope that we'll each appreciate the setting, the idea of the passage that we're going to wrestle with and study with some intensity this morning. You and I probably know from the perspective of history that the Protestant Reformation took place now about 500 years ago, at least that was the beginning of it, and there are many who would look upon that as a very good thing. And to be sure, there were some good attributes of it. But one of the consequences, without a doubt, was that there came to exist many differing religious organizations. I've tried to list it on the top of that slide. The differing religious organizations immediately prompts these questions. Question one. Maybe you've been asked this question. Someone may ask, so what denomination are you a member of? Or maybe you had to ask this question. Someone says, what denomination do you attend? It puts you and me in an interesting spot as we ponder the proper answer. Quite frankly today, how many bodies are there? The Holy Spirit just said there's one body, and therefore we, you and I cannot question or in any way doubt or compromise it. And so it is at the bottom of that slide. What is the church? I suppose there are a few questions of greater significance ultimately than that one. What is the church? Is it a denomination? Not only that, what is the place then of any of the denominations of which you and I may appreciate the existence from day to day. It is with all that in mind, let's go to the next slide. And let's devote at least the first moment or two of our lesson to reminding ourselves what's meant by this word denomination. I'd like each of us to ponder the following. At least as it can be commonly used... The word denomination is not evil. It's not wrong. It merely means to delineate something. That is to say, to segment it into understandable smaller parts. We often use the word, for instance, with relation to currency. You proceed to the bank and you'd say, perhaps the person at the bank says, in what denominations would you like your change? Fives, tens, twenties, fifties? You see, the word denomination just means to identify a subsection, a part of a whole. But the thing is, when it's used in a, in a religious sense, it has a sense I've tried to give you there. It identifies a religious group as distinct from another religious group. 
And this religious group has its own set of beliefs, its own set of practices, its own set of approaches. And again, it is supposedly distinct from any other such group. Therein will be the subject, the matter of discussion for you and me this morning. In particular, you might note, the current state of Christendom in the world is a confusing mess to most people. Are you aware of the fact that according to the recent estimates, the statistics, if you please, as maintained in databases worldwide, there are now in excess of 40,000 Christian denominations recognized in this world. You're probably as shocked as anyone else would be who thinks with some criticality about it. 40,000 now. And not only that, there are roughly about a thousand of them in our country, the United States of America. It's easy to see the difficulty that a given individual might have. If a person wished then on a Sunday morning, I want to meet with an organization that has religion and character, and that person proceeds to drive along the streets of any major city in our land, There'll be any number of buildings with some kind of name on it. And that name will, of course, be in relation to something touching a denomination. The person might ask, which one of these do I attend? Are all of them acceptable? If they're not, how do I know which ones are? Isn't that a great question? You and I forevermore have been reminded that there is one body. I can't help but believe the Holy Spirit chose to place a statement like that in the Word of God so that no matter how many centuries may pass, no matter how much time may elapse prior to the second coming of our Savior, forevermore there is but one body. Now on the bottom of that slide you'll notice these religious organizations of which you and I are certainly aware of their existence, they differ in many particulars. They have differing worship practices, differing beliefs, differing plans of salvation, differing characteristics by which they are separated and identified one from another. And may I suggest to you that in many instances, those distinctions are mutually exclusive. In other words, one teaches the exact opposite of another one. Now, all of us, I think, would be quick to say, let's face it, both can't be right if that's going on. If this one says baptism is essential for salvation and this one says it's not, both of them cannot possibly be right. Either one of them is right and one is wrong or both of them are wrong. And that's the kind of circumstance you and I see all throughout the circumstances concerning denominationalism. And yet, the Holy Spirit said there's one body. Let's close that slide then like this. What's all the more confusing is that as you appreciate the nature and the character of these differing religious organizations, they all claim to follow the same Lord, Jesus Christ. And by and large, they all claim to follow the same book. Now, how can this be? How can you have 40,000 organizations that claim to follow the same Lord and by and large the same book and yet they differ so widely? 
I think we can each appreciate the absolute confusion and how that it is not what the New Testament teaches. And so the next slide will lead us more thoroughly and more easily into some of the specifics of these matters. You and I know that these differing organizations distinguish themselves by and large by their name. At least that's one way that's typically utilized. And hence, some are Methodist, others are Baptist, and others are Anglican, and others are Presbyterian, and others are Jehovah's Witnesses, and so on down the list we go. And there are subgroups in each one of them. None of that changes the following fact. What should be made of the current world of denominationalism? You'll notice there are several approaches. Let me share one with you that maybe is a bit surprising. There are those in religion, even in the church of Christ, who will say denominationalism is fine. In fact, it's a blessing. Because it gives individuals the opportunity to choose. You choose a church that you're comfortable with, that has doctrines that are favorable to you. There are some people who believe that the, the smorgasbord variety of religion is a good thing. On the opposite end of that spectrum, there are those who say denominationalism is a curse. Because there's only one body and God has only approved one body. And therefore, all of these various denominations cannot possibly be pleasing. As you can well imagine, our chore, our task today will be to think about this using the Bible as our guide. We aren't interested in what I think. We aren't interested in what you think either. The only thing that interests us is Romans 4 verse 3, What saith the Scripture? And it is with that in mind we're going to turn our attention and allow the Word of God to inform us. What should be our viewpoint toward denominationalism? And answering our question about what's the church. As you and I close that slide, let's go ahead and take care of this matter up front. Denominationalism is not a good thing in terms of being approved by the nature of the New Testament. I say that for these reasons. The church of which we read in the New Testament is a glorious institution. I would call to your attention verses like these. In Ephesians 3.21, Unto Him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. And to that we might add Ephesians 5.27. The church, of course, is a glorious institution not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. In 2 Timothy 1 verse number 9, as Paul wrote to Timothy, he reminded him about the nature and character of the body for which Christ died and the nature of how glorious she really is. That glory that you and I appreciate takes us then to the word church. I've already used that a number of times in the lesson. The word church, as it appears in the New Testament, is the translation of the Greek word ekklesia. And that word is spelled E-K-K-L-E-S-I-A. At least that's the English correspondence of the Greek letters. The idea behind the word is so simple. It identifies those who've been called out.
as it relates to the church, then it means those who've been called out of the world into a covenant relationship with Jesus Christ. That's the idea of the church. That's what the word signifies. Now, you and I know that not in the church, we're serving Satan. And so one could, in fact, state that those who've been called out of service to Satan into service to Jesus. I'm so thankful, and I know you are as well, for the New Testament presentation of the church. With that in mind, notice where it leads us next. That word church, as it then is used in the New Testament, is used in some rather directed ways. For instance, it can refer to a local congregation of the people of God. Like the church of God at Corinth. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 1. The church of the Ephesians. Revelation 2 verse 1. The church of God at Jerusalem. The point is, we are the church of Christ at Pippin. We're in the Pippin community of Putnam County in the state of Tennessee. But you and I know there are lots of other congregations like the church of Christ at Smyrna, the church of Christ at Willow Avenue, the church of Christ, any number of others might also be mentioned. Now, Pippin is not that which formally attaches us to God. That just tells what community our building happens to be in. But note the wider sense of that word. The word church is often used, of course, to refer to the universal body of believers who've been called again out of the world into service to Jesus Christ. So you and I have brothers and sisters in Christ in Malaysia, Australia, Europe, Great Britain, China, all around the globe, you and I have brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, they're not a part of the Pippin Church of Christ, but they're part of the Church of Christ wherever they may be. Aren't you and I impressed with the beautiful global character of the church as it attaches to the bottom of that slide? Jesus said in Matthew 16, verse 18, you might recall that Peter was in conversation with the Lord on that occasion. A part of that conversation led to this interesting statement. Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, many things might be noted about that, but for the course of our lesson this morning, aren't you and I impressed? Jesus said, I will build my church. He did not say churches. That word church is singular both in English and in Greek. Jesus built one church. Please note this with me. He did not build 40,000 churches. He built one. He only promised to build one. Later on in Acts 20 verse 28, it therein says, As Paul, the inspired individual, directed attention to the elders of the Ephesian congregation, he said, Take heed to yourselves and to the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. Did you notice? There's one flock in that verse and there's one church. Both again are singular. And it is said with respect to that church, Jesus purchased it with his blood. Jesus shed His blood to buy one church, one body. 
you and I should be forever thankful that God has revealed the particulars and the structure and the nature of that one body. As you and I approach the bottom of that slide, we've thus noticed that this universal church flies in the face of modern denominationalism. When it comes to this church of which the Lord bought, this church that He shed His blood to purchase, it is frequently highlighted in the Word of God that this church is one. The word O-N-E. I cannot think of a word that is more sensitive to the thought of uniqueness than the word one. If there's only one of something, that means there's not even a duplicate. You and I are frequently impressed in this world when there's two of something, because that still means it's fairly unique. But there is but one church, and there is no way of looking at the New Testament in any way aside from that truth. I've listed a whole host of passages. Could we at least note in passing a couple of them? In John 17, would you be impressed with the setting and the reality of what the Lord taught that night? Jesus was going to be crucified the next morning. The next morning, we are now less than 12 hours away when they're going to drive nails into His hands and feet. And what was on His mind was this, Father... I pray that they may be one, even as Thou art in me and I in Thou, that they may be one in us. Jesus prayed that all, for all time, who would believe in Him would be united, that they'd be one. Does that describe modern denominationalism? Of course it doesn't. This group teaches something different than that one. This one worships in a different way than that one. This one has no fellowship with that one. There's no unity, and yet that's the thing for which the Lord prayed. If everybody would follow this book for the way it's taught, and the truth upon which it presents, there could be unity. Not only that, you might also note this text in Ephesians chapter 4. In verse number 3 of this chapter, Paul told the Ephesian individuals, the church in Ephesus, they were to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That word endeavor means to give diligence to. It means to work toward. Endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit. They were to highlight unity. Paul, what do you mean? He now lists seven things highlighting that unity. Let's look at them briefly. There's one body and one Spirit, even as you're called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. Seven of them. And there's only one of each one of them. And the list begins with this one. There's one body. Only one. So the Ephesians would appreciate the oneness, the absolute singleness of that truth. For that reason, notice... That unity is highlighted in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 10. There was a congregation at Corinth. Now this congregation had some problems with divisiveness and disharmony. There were some who were saying, I am of Paul, and I am of Apollos, and I am of Cephas, and I am of Christ. In verse 13 of that chapter, this question is asked, Is Christ divided? 
Three verses earlier than that, in verse number 10, this remarkable truth is presented. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. The kind of unity of which the Master spoke and of which Paul wrote was a unity characteristic of this. You speak the same thing. You have the same judgment. You are of the same mind. That doesn't describe modern denominationalism either. But that's the thing for which Jesus prayed. That leads to this conclusion. Is denominationalism a blessing? Absolutely not. It's evil, it's sinful, and it's wrong. It's the very thing opposite for what Jesus prayed. You and I must be ever appreciative and thankful for the message of God relative to the beauty of the church. And that's what will lead us through the remainder of our lesson this morning. Because it is the powerful answer of God that there is one church. I hope each of us will leave today, even if we didn't come that way, reminded again of how thankful we ought to be for God's revelation of the church. Being a member of the church is the single greatest thing in your life or mine. Nothing is more important than that. Because if I'm not a member of that body, we're going to find some terrible consequences in a minute. Let's start our journey like this. The Holy Spirit said there's one body. There's only one. With the idea of that one body in mind, the middle of that slide leads us to note this. The New Testament is filled with references to the oneness, to the singleness, to the uniqueness of that body. And as far as its significance, look at this point. Would you read Ephesians 5 verse 23? Note it as I ask you to consider it. That passage is found in that, pa in that section that talks about marriage, but it also talks about, of course, the church. And verse 23 says this, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he, that he is Christ, is the Savior of the body. Now, otherwise, we notice much might be said about the first part of that verse, and maybe that's a lesson for a different time. But the last sentence said, He, that's Jesus, is the Savior of the body. What is that body? No doubt about that. All you have to do is go back four chapters. In Ephesians 1, verses 22 and 23, the body's identified. Let's note the language. On that occasion, as Paul wrote that passage, "...and gave himself to be head of the body, which is the church, the fullness of him that filleth all in all." The body is said to be the church. And so there in Ephesians 5.23, you and I, if you like to write in your Bible, when it says He's the Savior of the body, He's the Savior of the church. That immediately signifies if you're not in the body... If you're not in the church, that is, you have no Savior. You can't be saved. If Jesus is the Savior of the body, that necessarily means one must be in the body in order to have a Savior. Thus, one must be in the body in order to be saved. 
if you and I are not in the body, if any person's not in the body, that person's not saved. Notice what else is follows. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 16. Same, same letter. It says, And that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. There's that word body again. Now you and I recognize, we've already identified, that the body's the church, and so that he might reconcile both unto God in one church. The conclusion is obvious. If a person is not in the body, according to that verse, you have not yet been reconciled to God. You haven't been drawn to Him. You haven't had that chasm that separates you from Him closed. We can begin to see it is a significant thing and eternally powerful whether one's in this body. Look at the third one. In 1 Timothy 3 verse 15, as Paul addressed those remarks to Timothy, his young son in the faith, he had these words to say, But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Would you be impressed with, with these two observations? First of all, there is an expected behavior in the church. Did you notice Paul wrote to Timothy and said, I have written this letter to you so that you'll know how to behave yourself even if I'm not able to come to you soon. If I tarry long, may you and I never think that any and everything is okay. Certain behaviors are not allowed by God. Timothy, you need to know how to behave yourself in the church. Now, as you think about those other particulars provided to us in the letter of 1 Timothy, think about what else is there. 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 and following. How do you appoint a man as an elder? Is it okay to have elders? Should the church have them? Timothy, that you may know how to behave yourself. If I tarry long, I've written this letter. Here's how you need to select men to be elders. Those qualifications are by inspiration. What about the utility of females? That's also in 1 Timothy. I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man. The point is, in chapter 3, verse 15, you notice this church is the pillar and the ground of the truth. Truth is such a precious commodity. Think about where we'd be without truth. Quite often in life, we are very aware of the nature of truth, and we're thankful for it. I'm thankful, aren't you, that there are standards that set the nature of safety for the food industry. When we go to buy some food at the grocery store, I want an certainty, a certification, if you please, that this is safe for consumption. There's a truth in regard to those regulations. May we never forget, there is a truth in religion. I understand that the world likes to think that there isn't. That anything is okay as long as you're sincere and honest, but that isn't true and it's never been true. It's a delusion. And the devil is a master at promoting it. For those reasons, let's close that slide by highlighting, we must be wise. 
God demands that we be wise. He has given us His Word, a description of that one body. And so it is. We're ready to conclude our lesson. Maybe we'll take a little longer in the conclusion than normal because of what we've studied this morning. How many bodies are there? One. We've learned that means how many churches are there? One. No matter what the human family may say, with a different answer to that question, God's Word is right. That means when you and I give thought to the existence of these various denominations, our interest is not denominationalism. Our interest is the revelation of the Word of God and the truth which it presents. I don't want to be a member of any denomination because Jesus didn't die for any denomination. He died for His church. He promised to build His church. He didn't promise to build any denomination. Have you perhaps wondered about it like this? If it were possible to transition back in time, a time traveler, and you were to drop down in the middle of the first century, you drop down in a city that's mentioned in the New Testament, and you suddenly see a man who is excited and enthusiastic, and he is so happy. And you get his attention, you stop him and say, Sir, could I ask, why are you so happy? And he, with a smile on his face, he says, I became a Christian this morning. I heard this fellow preaching, and he was able to preach in such a way that it illustrated and answered all of my questions. And I became a Christian. And so you and I, perhaps in curiosity, well, sir, what, what church did you become a member of? What denomination? And he says, I, I don't know anything about this word denomination you're talking about, but I became a member of the church. Again, be impressed. There was no denomination until about 500 years ago. And yet the New Testament was written 1,500 years ago. There were no denominations in Bible times. If we were to do today what they did then, couldn't we become today what they were then? We continue our investigation with this gentleman. Well, who founded this church? Jesus Christ is all He says. And yet today, think about the answers. John Calvin, John Wesley, John Smith, Judge Rutherford, King of England... I don't want to be a member of anybody that any of those guys founded because it's not the church Jesus built. We ask more questions of our friend. Having seen his excitement, having seen the simplicity of his answers, maybe we ask, who can become a member of this body? He says, anybody that will obey the gospel. You don't have to be voted in. You can't be voted in. Jesus adds every single person who is baptized scripturally. That's it. There is nothing else. May I say to you again, the New Testament is wholly undenominational. It condemns denominationalism and it highlights one body, one church. You and I should be eternally thankful for the information about that one body that not only is it detailed for us, but the entrance requirements are, are these. 
Sir, what do you have to do to become a member of it? You've got to believe in Jesus. And you've got to do so with all your heart. You've got to repent of your sins. You've got to turn aside from those former sinful ways in life and make a diligent effort to live in harmony with what Jesus teaches. You've got to make a public confession. And it's a happy thing, and I was glad to do it, he says. And you and I could say the same. Making confession that Jesus is the Son of God. And then, I was baptized, he says, in water for the remission of my sins. Now, as he says that, maybe our mouth would drop open in light of today. There are some in our world who say, all you got to do is believe. And there are others who will say, all you got to do is repent. And there are others who say, all you got to do is have a nice feeling in your heart. And there's not a single scripture anywhere that testifies to any of that as being enough to cause you to be saved. To those on Pentecost, Peter said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. We today simply preach the same thing they did then. Today, if there would be anybody in this audience, maybe you haven't appreciated the oneness of the church, maybe in light of some of the things we've studied today, I hope you'll leave reinvigorated with that premise. May that truth stand until the end of time. And may you and I boldly proclaim it. If you have been a faithful Christian, perhaps at some point, but have wandered away from the fold of faith, why not come back to your first love today? We'd be honored to pray to God for you and to celebrate with you. This simplicity of this one church is a subject so different, I know, than what is so common. But man has a way of complicating what God has made so simple. That's happened here today. If we could be of help to any individual in these matters, we implore you to come while together we stand and sing.